0: Intelligence lessons from the US and the UK.
1: In my mind, it was always about looking for case studies where, where we could look at them in context and instead of providing a critique of, or a, an exact roadmap, it was really to provide a, a lessons learned, observations. Um, with the end game, not about us prescribing a whole heap of you musts, more about let's think.
0: Myanmar's coup
2: and ASEAN's credibility. Uh, this begs question: What's next for ASEAN, and also, you know, to what extent ASEAN is going to be able to change its tactics and measures to engage uh, in mediation in the Myanmar crisis?
0: And cyber capacity in the Pacific.
3: It is a challenge. A lot of the issues around online safety and systems, and you know, they're getting hacked and all becomes the problem of the technical people, but it really needs to become a whole of organisation, a whole of government, or a whole of community.
0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, ASPI released a report on the lessons learned for Australia's intelligence communities from our key partners, the United States and United Kingdom. Two of the report's authors, Michael Shoebridge and Dr John Coyne, discuss their key findings and some of the shared challenges that the intelligence agencies are facing.
4: Michael Shoebridge here, ASPE's Director of Defence Strategy and National Security, and it's great to be talking with John Coyne about the joint report that he, I and Rajiv Shah have put together around insights from the US and UK intelligence communities for our own Australian intelligence community, uh, collaborative and agile. John, we've got 10 minutes, so we'll try and go through the bones of the report, why we did it and what's important that's come out of it.
1: Sounds good, Michael. I guess you know the collaborative agile. You know that's the future of intelligence communities dealing with the modern or their emerging landscape. So, two thousand and seventeen—that's where you and I started our discussions, which was the intelligence review that was done. Um,
4: and you know, what has changed since then? Yeah, the strange merchant review. So, I suppose. It really set out the rise of uh, non-state actors and powerful state actors as an intelligence challenge uh, for, for agencies, and it spent a lot of time on the digital data explosion and the kind of early implications of that for intelligence. And it really began a broader concept of the intelligence community, bringing in new agencies and an expanded national intelligence community. And uh, looking back, I suppose, there's some really interesting things that have happened since, and maybe some consequences for some of those ideas and constructs. Because to me, if I was to give a list and the report gets into this, uh, COVID was in our future at that time. And uh, the idea of technological decoupling between the Chinese technology ecosystem and the US and its powerful G7 partners and allies like Australia. That was uh, hadn't really started then. And of course, Donald Trump was in the White House. Uh, so a lot has changed since that time. John, why did we choose to look at the US and UK? And did we just do that, you know, here we are in the Anglosphere, let's copy our, our UK and, and US colleagues?
1: Um, look, you know, there is a habit um, across the intelligence communities, and you know we spend a lot of time talking about this uh, when we are developing the report. There's a habit, a cringe factor of wanting to bring in either, you know, a foreign national to do a review or to advise on a review or to look to the Americans for examples, but in my mind, it was always about looking for case studies where, where we could look at them in context and instead of providing a critique of, or an exact roadmap, was really to provide a, a lessons learned, observations, um, with the end game not about us prescribing a whole heap of you musts, more about let's think what does this mean? And of course, um, one of the most important things of bureaucracies was what ought one to do. And I think that what we had is the ability to sort of step out, especially with the UK example, is to step out and look at The life cycle of the changes in the UK, right up to and including the the early sort of first year of COVID-19, I think they provided really strong examples in context, and they were less threatening than sort of putting that prescriptive, you know, this is what we must do in Australia.
4: Yes, yeah, which I think the report makes it clear it's a mistake to just try and shoehorn approaches out of the UK intelligence community or or bigger US intelligence community into Australia because they... They historically haven't worked. So thinking about that though, one thing the report does get into, and we got this from a range of UK voices, is there was a real acceleration of low-side development, as in not the highly you know, top-secret classified work, uh, which we can't talk about, but really the value and power of unclassified and open-source data, and more importantly, all the platforms and analytics that, that generate insights from that.
1: Well, that's it, Mike. And you remember when we we co-authored together a report a year ago looking at cloud in national security. And what you're describing there is cloud in national security in action, which is if you have a cloud of clouds, it opens up the possibility of, of doing work on the low side, pulling it into the high side and being able to operationalise it. And it provides you with this immense capability and ability to quickly adapt new technologies. Now, the UK lesson was interesting because... On one side, the engineers loved it, okay, so COVID-19, locked workforces down, but engineers could continue to work on these sort of bespoke developments on the unclassified or low side and then deploy them on the high side. That was the interesting part, and no doubt that helps organisations like GCHQ, NSA, ASD. Mm. But I think there's some more to it as well in terms of what you're unlocking.
4: Yes, yeah, well, there was, uh, I think, another uh, really interesting insight that the development side, you know, applications and ways of exploiting that open source data really took off uh, because of the forcing function of COVID and the fact that people couldn't work in highly classified workspaces. But it seemed like it was earlier for applying all that at the analytic level and there's still clearly a whole lot of potential there, even in the UK uh, where there was this fast-tracking So there's some good practice there, but some sort of still unrealised potential. And then obviously the US with their own cloud journeys, since we wrote our report, the ending of JEDI, the furthering of the multi-cloud approach uh, that the Central Intelligence Agency is doing, and the de facto adoption of that approach by the Pentagon because of the failure of JEDI. So that's the same lesson about vendor lock-in and the need to get tools and apps from multiple trusted vendors that brings me to the trusted partnership between the corporate and the intelligence agency that came out pretty clearly look
1: it did and I think this is one of those sort of challenges I think first off is that when we looked across all of these case examples there's a lot of pressure on uh, for very good reasons for intelligence communities and intelligence agencies to deliver without any mistakes but when we look in the tech world, you know, go and look at Google, we go and look at Apple, they're successful because of their failures. Um, So they take them in there. So one part of this and this discussion and this example of working with vendors is when we look to the UK and US example, is we're seeing an evolution of changes in action. Where fortunately we haven't had to make those same failures and mistakes because we can see them in play and in action. So the failure of Jedi is a good example of that. The UK experience in putting multiple systems in place to work with the private sector, whether that's a banking system to be able to fund startups and keep them in sovereign that's exactly right and keep them in sovereign hands and that technology in sovereign hands and I think that that's where it really does show that there's this sort of huge opportunity but in order to do that you know it has to move beyond that traditional vendor locked in strategic partnership of of transactional delivery
4: or the arms length contractor so I think that's an interesting part of the title collaborative and agile it's not just the agencies in Australia are working more closely together with less tribalism flavouring that, but it's also a different kind of partnership with trusted corporate partners. Uh, that came through very clearly in, in both the US and, and uh, UK examples. Another thing that really struck me out of both US and UK intelligence communities was how do you get mission urgency and focus across a large group of individuals and agencies. And the lesson there from both US and UK experiences seems to be that top down political direction is helpful, but the thing that really does it is a sense of actual burning mission focus within the agencies and the people in the agencies themselves I think we heard that with the UK for example
1: look there can be no doubt about that you know there's a number of different schools of thought here you know when you talk about it so some people tell you you know it's about the budgets if you draw the budgets together if a and you heard this argument in the US so you know if the DNI only had control over all the budgets then they could drive change um, having served in a number of agencies and you know talked to a number of people who have even served in more what we saw is this definitive pattern there is this sort of deep tribalism you know cultural things people with organizations and deeply connected And as a result of that, they've got a mission focus for their organisation. What we saw in the UK example was, you know, when two points and two drivers came together, one was finance and the other one, as you said, was that burning platform. So when those bombs went off on the 7-7 bombings in the UK... In the middle of London. In the middle of London, they acted as a lightning rod to bring the whole of the community together. And so it was that combined impact. And I think now we're looking forward, you know, 2017 our intelligence review, the authors really made an effort. They were old school national security types so being forward focused. They really tried to focus on the new environment as they saw it then. As we started today's session and discussion, there is a real change since then. We know we've long passed the highlight or the the high point of our relationship with China and there is a burning platform.
4: Yes, well that's that's interesting because it gets us right to the heart of the digital data explosion and that urgent sense of mission because in a decoupling technological world with rising recognition of the systemic challenge of China, this is the metric that the Australian intelligence community's performance will be measured by, how well it does on the China mission. And that's not just Foreign intelligence mission for ASD and ASIS and DIO and the Office of National Intelligence, its assessment arm at least. It's also got to be a combined team sport with ASIO in particular with countering foreign interference and counter espionage. That, as as we set out in the report, that challenges the construct of the all big, all in uh, expanded national intelligence community. It's probably a mini lateral within it but it's really gonna have to have that burning mission focus. Uh, that's, That's the test for success or failure.
1: And I think that minilateralism is another key part about it to me, which is, you know, there is a desire, and we've seen this over many decades, to bring the whole of the community together at the same time and, and try to push through all of the barriers along the way. But there is a hope. We're seeing this play out in international relations, and, and our report certainly touches on this, which is with that burning platform we have, minilateralism, where you're a small group working together, sort of, I guess, pathfinds collaboration and cooperation and agility mm. along the
4: way. The the other agencies coming with them eventually. Yeah, we haven't got time to get into it now, but it d- does also challenge the other construct we've seen rise since the 2017 Intelligence Review, which began on the day that the Intelligence Review was announced, if you remember, the formation of home affairs. So the tighter a grouping of home affairs intelligence agencies under the direction of the portfolio rather than the broader intelligence community and also the rise of the new defence intelligence enterprise, so with the chief of defence intelligence. So there are some streams that complicate the pursuit of this cooperative mission focus from this smaller mini-lateral of agencies. But I suppose I'd end by saying the report says this is a time of enormous opportunity for the Australian intelligence community not just because of the really capable partnerships with our US and UK partners have so given more horsepower with AUKUS but because of the promise of mission success on the China mission in this decoupled world
1: absolutely
0: ASEAN's response to the Myanmar coup in February this year has challenged the group's credibility Dr. Huang Le Tu and Dr. David Angle explore this in their latest ASPI report, Myanmar's coup, ASEAN's crisis and the implications for Australia. They discuss ASEAN's credibility, Indonesia's leadership and Australia's mid to long-term role in the regional grouping.
5: Well, hi Wong. how are you?
2: Hi David, good to be with you.
5: Huang, since you last covered this issue of Myanmar in, uh, in this podcast series, a lot has been happening. I'm sure a lot of listeners would be very interested in hearing your thoughts about the latest developments in Myanmar.
2: That's right. I think for some time, the external observers have gone into a little bit of frustration that there's a stalemate in Myanmar, this very green situation happening and uh, violence didn't stop. Uh, meanwhile, ASEAN, um, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, as well as other diplomatic measures were seemed to be at stalemate But we've seen in in the recent few weeks, uh, some important developments. For example, at the latest ASEAN Summit that just happened um, late October, the 38 and 39 summits, Myanmar didn't have representation, so uh, Min Ong did not uh, attend, was not invited to attend. And for the first time in ASEAN's history, we had an incomplete gathering. And with the virtual summit happening, we had a blank screen instead of uh, ASEAN. Now this is important because uh, this begs the question, what's next for ASEAN? And also, you know, to what extent ASEAN is going to be able to change it's tactics and measures to engage uh, in mediation in the Myanmar crisis.
5: Well, this, I think, is the principal subject of the report that you and I, along with our colleague Hilary Mansour, have just put out. It's called A Myanmar's Ku ASEAN's Crisis. And the latter part of that title is the, what we're really most concerned about. How have people within ASEAN responded to what ASEAN has been doing with regard to Myanmar.
2: So the February coup in Myanmar is by no means first time that this region witnessed violent coups and takeover of power, not for the first time for ASEAN to deal with such situation. And uh, again, ASEAN fall into what is used to do in the past, which is constructive engagement, and it hopes that through a dialogue, inclusion, and keeping the channels of communication open, it will be able to have a stronger influence and mediate in the crisis. I think there had been attempts from ASEAN to talk to Mian Lang as, as well as Tatmadaw and encourage Kathmandu to stop violence, um, stop the killing, uh, open up for special envoy, as well as opening up to accept humanitarian assistance from ASEAN and other countries. But as we have seen over the last few months, it just didn't happen. So there was a lot of frustration about ASEAN's reaction and response within ASEAN itself as well. And what we saw was a very clear diversion within ASEAN member states of their views about what to do with Myanmar. So really what this Myanmar crisis did is expose uh, the lack of unity and in the positions as well as in worldviews within these organisations. So I think this is one of the major crises for ASEAN itself. That's why they, we call the, the report, it is an ASEAN crisis as well, because I think the fundamental mechanism that ASEAN works on consensus, which is a total agreement among all 10 ASEAN countries, is increasingly unattainable.
5: It hasn't done a lot, I think, for ASEAN's reputation and credibility. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yes, well, ASEAN works on the principle of non-interference, right? So just when it started, ASEAN's position was, you know, its main role is not to interfere and will the people themselves will decide and determine the faith of the nation. And it refers to every case. But this time around it's very different because the people of Myanmar at the general election in November 2020 chose overwhelmingly Aung San Suu Kyi and her party NLD. And what we're having now is still uh, violence and there's a civil disobedient movement that oppose Tatmadaw's power and ASEAN is being tested on its really non-interference principle. Throughout this process, ASEAN has tried to come up with a five-point consensus that I mentioned earlier about calling Tadmado to cease violence and accept special envoy as well as humanitarian assistance, for example. But without Tadmado's compliance with that, it really remains little, not much more than a piece of paper. And we've seen within ASEAN there are different actors that demonstrated different kind and different level of activism within this crisis. And something that you, David, could elaborate on is, for example, Indonesia's role. And in the past, in different crisis situations, Indonesia had been able to either lead or shatter diplomacy in the process and really lead the way in terms of de-aiding in many previous crises. How would you assess this time around Indonesia's leadership
5: within the region. Well you're right of course Indonesia in this instance has been I think more exercised by development in Myanmar than most of the countries and its foreign minister Retno Masudi has been I think as committed as any to brokering an outcome. I mean after all Indonesia as you've said was instrumental in ASEAN's charter coming about in the first place and containing clauses on democracy and human rights and ASEAN is central to Indonesia's whole foreign policy. So if ASEAN's credibility is seriously diminished, then the principal foundation of Indonesian foreign policy is ipso facto undermined. But at the same time, Indonesia has not really been prepared to confront head-on the full ramifications for ASEAN of Myanmar's intransigence. I think in part this probably reflects the fact that the Jokowi administration is more internally focused and less internationally active than, say, its immediate predecessor. But perhaps most saliently, it's tied itself to ASEAN's shibboleths of consensus and non-interference as tightly as any of the ASEAN states, and it's been, in that context, I think, as guilty as any of allowing those notions to prevail over the principle that ASEAN members must comply with their obligations under the charter and should otherwise be held to account. It doesn't appear, for example, Indonesia, to have pushed for Myanmar's formal suspension as some leading Indonesian observers have urged. So while it is sought to be in the forefront of ASEAN's actions on Myanmar, its leadership has, I think in this instance, largely been ineffective.
2: Yeah, I think it's right to say that Myanmar crisis is really affecting ASEAN's credibility. And we've been, for the longest time, I think ASEAN has face that t- challenge of how to assert its, its centrality and it, its claim centrality, and oftentimes it points to the external initiatives and external dynamics to be challenging its uh, centrality, including some have uh, within ASEAN pointed at. Quad, for example, or more recently at AUKUS, and even the Great Powers for either overshadowing or um, taking away that centrality. But this crisis, and it is really within the region, this crisis really shows that if ASEAN can't really act upon the crisis that happens within the region, then where it is to claim that centrality. And I think one of the most striking examples that I've seen in the recent history is what earlier in the months of demonstrations, the protesters in Myanmar burned ASEAN flag that has not happened before. I I certainly don't recall anything like that. So really at this moment, ASEAN is standing in front of a choice of either being marginalized and become irrelevant or really overcoming this crisis and coming up with more resilience responses and, and pragmatic responses. But David, in that context, with such a regional crisis unfolding, what would be Australians' role, if we have any, in this particular security and a long-term challenge that would will have at least mid to long-term implications for the broader region.
5: Well, I think there are two particular angles to this. Australia does have tangible interests in Myanmar itself. For example, Myanmar is the principal source of illegal narcotics in Australia. So the more unstable and ungovernable Myanmar becomes, the bigger this threat risks becoming too. Additionally, and this is the bigger question that I think you're touching on, Australia has a stake in a stable and prosperous ASEAN. An unstable, fracturing Myanmar poses problems for ASEAN stability and prosperity, and thus for Australia's specific interests in the Mekong River region. But above all, above all, as a middle power, Australia has an interest in seeing the Indo-Pacific's future-determined as much as possible through diplomacy and the rule of law, than the simple exercise of power. And ASEAN lies at the centre of regional affairs. You mentioned its centrality before, including ideally, I think, its role as a mediator of great power tensions in the region. And this is something Australia and others have recognised. So Australia has a stake in ASEAN being a credible, effective and respected organisation able to perform well that central function, but it really can't do so compellingly if it is discredited and perceived as ineffective by virtue of failing to address its own internal problems and by acting weakly in response to them, especially especially when that problem is a result of an ASEAN member not even obeying ASEAN's own rules of association as defined in its charter. That's
2: right. And in the recent summit that we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, Australia has elevated its relationship with ASEAN to comprehensive strategic partners and now have annual summits. So hopefully there are more channels of communication for Australia to engage with the region and and support and encourage ASEAN's internal reform processes, for example. But also I think Australia has a stake in a way that our citizen, Professor Chantal Nell, is still detained in Myanmar, so we have to use all measures of diplomatic capacity to have him back. The crisis is unfolding. It's still in a very difficult situation, and we will have to keep observing. For more analysis, please look up our most recent report called Myanmar's Cool ASEAN's Crisis and Implications for." post
0: Recently, Papua New Guinea's government pay system was hit by a ransomware attack. ASPI's Bart Hoggeveen speaks with Pacific cyber expert Sheree Lagakali about cyber capacity in the Pacific. They discuss ransomware attacks in the region and the challenge of building whole of community standard practices.
6: Hey Sheree, welcome and thanks for joining us on the Aspie podcast. It's been been two years since we last met in person in Melbourne at the uh, the regional Pacific meeting of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, right before all of our borders closed. Here in Australia, we, we talk a lot about how digital has enabled us to continue work, working from home, keeping a safe distance, and how that has really kind of boosted businesses and governments to go online even, even more. And at the same time, we are I mean warned of increased risk, cybercrime, ransomware, theft of personal data, etc. I'm just wondering, how has that been in Fiji, where where you are living and working?
3: Thank you, Bart, for having me. It's so good to see you again. Although we did see each other face-to-face in Melbourne, we have been working together on the GFCE Scoping Project, and it's so good to have had you on board for that. I'd say that even though we have been in lockdown in Fiji for just about two years, work hasn't really stopped. A lot of things have gone online. There's been a lot of work from home, a lot of adjustments. Uh, schools have opened, schools have closed, schools have opened and then they've closed again. We've just been told that schools are going to open again in on the fourth of January. They've been closed since April this year. And there's um people have had to adjust to a bigger office of cooperation then they've had to get COVID tests before they can step into the office. But online, I was impressed that for the whole of last and then again for the six months this year we had our internet was stable we had two cyclones in between and then you know we had that major case then I think slowed down and then in April the cases got worse and so it's been a big adjustment just working from home having the kids at home adjusting to times of working when they're sleeping oh, because I think be full-time mom full-time worker but I've, I've actually enjoyed this process. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to survive when to working in an office again.
6: It has it kind of really similarly kind of reinforced how important connectivity is, similar to, I think, what we're experiencing here?
3: Yes, it has. And I mentioned that it was impressive that our internet had survived the load of everybody being online. There was a particular time where you could tell it was between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. Digicel had allowed what net game to be free for you know part of the package deal that they were allowing families. And at that for three months at that particular point in time, you could not get online most of the time, but it was just because of that load on the network. But we've had a few ransomware incidences on and off. But and we've also had a uh, credit card scam. Um, one of the biggest things that was a concern here in PG right after we went on lockdown the first time was the pyramid scam. A lot of people were, were concerned about you know, you could start buying things online, you could make money fast online, but you know, how true and how valuable is that for you and how safe are you with those kind
6: of You mentioned, besides the pyramid scan, incidents of ransomware attacks or ransomware incidents. I just wanted to maybe talk a bit about what happened in Papua New Guinea and PNG in late October. And i don't think there was lots of kind of media attention to the incident but it was picked up by among others by seriously risky biz newsletter which was edited by our former colleague tom Uren, where they explained what happened in png where the government's financial management system was subject to a ransomware attack which kind of made payments from the central government to local outlets virtually impossible i mean i know you know the cyber folks in png quite well how did you read this incident and what's kind of your interpretation of what happened there and and how significant it was?
3: I do know them pretty well. And I have a lot of respect for the, you know, the great work that they're doing on the ground. They have done a lot of um, changes and progress in terms of their strategies and policies and just trying to get communication aligned in the ministry. And when I also saw that, you know, right away after they had that uh, particular attack, there was the press release from the minister. And I was impressed by that. Uh, You know, it was really appreciated that, you know, they could be that transparent about that they had an incident and this is where the incident came from because they're also working on their digital government bill for uh, 2021 to get it passed in parliament. And once that gets passed, that gives more power for centralizing of the government systems, but also when there's a particular issue. In the case of this particular incident in Papua New Guinea, the organization of the system that was hacked is currently they still have a choice of whether they want to come under the protection of the SOC and they had chosen not to. Um, actually,
6: the, SOC, the SOC is the Cyber Security Operations Center, right?
3: Yes. yes. And I wanted to compare that to an incident. We've had actually two public incidents in PG, just this there. One was the one with the government systems. And then a little closer to the PNG incident was my particular bank, debit card systems were hacked. And they were not that open about it. They were not that transparent about it. It would have been nice to know whether my account was affected or not, I'm still a customer. You still need to tell me that you had a hack, you you're, you know, responsible to tell me that this is what happened and how it happened. But they only called the people whose accounts that affected. And one of the measures that the bank has taken of recent before and still after that, it was, they were able to protect or, you know, stop the attack on time while it was still happening. It happened at about four o'clock in the morning. It's a manual measure. Uh, they've blocked everybody from using credit cards any online processing and when you try to use it then they'll call you to ask you if you were trying to do that and then they'll let you do it it's very manual it's not a really good way but it's keeping them safe you know so that's how they were able to stop that attack and it
6: seems to work right
3: some accounts were affected in that attack. And in fact, when I did check with my bank officer, he had no idea about it, but that was a bit of concern to help customer care people. They did mention that, yes, there was an attack. They were able to stop it on time. They tried to give a good explanation on it, but I did not see that there was a press release on it about three days later.
6: I think that's generally a challenge for in particular industry to be more forthcoming and open about what's happening and particular, there where it affects customers. I just wanted to... Pick up on the public acknowledgement that the government of PNG did after the incident. But one of the things the minister also said was that the Department of Finance, which was managing that particular system, quote, did not take up the offer for protection services from the National Cybersecurity Center. And he was arguing that there was a need to escalate information and communication technology issues to the strategic level of the public service, and that currently cyber and ICT issues are predominantly viewed as a technical support service is that something that you see in other parts of the region as well as as a challenge or as a as a phenomenon
3: it is a challenge a lot of the issues around online safety and systems and you know they're getting hacked and all becomes the problem of the technical people but it really needs to become a whole of organization a whole of government or whole of community so that we're educating each other on what not to click on, and then rather than just looking to blame the technical people for why this happened in, because a lot of times it can be just from clicking on a link on an email that you shouldn't have clicked on. And I think our technical uh, people, oh, you know, we have this in the different countries, and they're they're trying, they're doing their best to educate people. But organizations and within departments, you know, if we had that kind of awareness that kind of information readily available just teaching and making people aware that would go a long way right.
6: if you hear stories like once you're mentioning about the bank in fiji and kind of the ransomware in png and, and i'm sure there are others also around kind of e-safety and people being not so safe online i sometimes get the feeling that there's always a bit of a negative spin around it right so it's an area of, of concern or risk of threats people getting harmed And people are pointing to, ah, there's not enough capacity, there are not enough skills, and and there's not enough cybersecurity awareness. But do you believe that's kind of a a correct picture of the state of cybersecurity in the Pacific, or are there things that are actually really worthwhile highlighting as as great achievements over the past year or years?
3: I think that as a region, the focus had mostly been to get everybody online. And that's probably ninety percent, ninety eight percent penetration rates. Uh, internet is really good. Internet is affordable, accessible. Uh, but then there's still some places where, in, you know, you still need satellite. When it rains, it goes down. or uh, they're still trying to figure out, you know, try to stay online all the time. And there's achievements around how well internet and you know the, the, the submarine cables have brought around internet, but maybe the decision makers and those planning didn't really think down the line of. Okay. After the internet comes, everybody's online. Internet is cheap. More people are online. How do you keep them safe? And so we're still playing a catch up game, but there are good initiatives from awareness campaigns through programs like online safety. There's cyber safety Pacifica with the Australian federal police that's visiting the schools with the local police and educating people. And there's also, uh, you know, partnerships on the ground um, through Paxson. And the and the communities coming together and not just with capacity building of the technical people, but also making resources available locally in communities and in the local language.
6: I think one of the things that that hasn't gotten too much attention is kind of that community of practice that has formed in the last couple of years, instant response teams that have been established in PNG, as we mentioned, but also in Vanuatu, Tonga and Samoa and the Pacific Cybersecurity Operators Network that you refer to, which kind of seems to be really building as uh, the go-to network and place for cybersecurity folks in the region and uh, being a real proper platform. we, you mentioned some of the initiatives that have partly also been funded and supported by the Australian government through the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Featured quite prominently in Australia's International Cyber and Critical Technology Engagement Strategy. I just wanted to maybe talk a little bit about the practices of cyber capacity building in the Pacific, as how you see that. And maybe just a short I mean, reflection on my own experience. I think at the very start of my role at ASPI, we were doing a, a project on, on supporting e governance in the Pacific. Relatively small project, it was funded by the Australian government and we partnered by the global recognized acclaimed institution for e-governance, which is the e-governance academy in Estonia. So the two of us organized workshops, a couple of follow-up missions in individual countries in the region. But when I reflect on it, and also based on the work that the two of us have been doing, I really kind of felt that I struggled with just cultural differences and really to connect with kind of the Pacific reality on the ground. I mean, you can make all kinds of assumptions and make logical connections to how e-governance might work in the Caribbean or in Europe or in parts of Africa. But still, the Pacific is a very different environment and it just works differently. It needs to work differently, I guess. But I was also really struggling to make sure that whatever we were doing as part of this very small project would fit somewhere nicely in what government agencies were already doing. So that it kind of would help them. And I was really struggling with the fact that Most of these projects tend to have a bit of an on and off character, right? So struggling with kind of keeping a continued engagement by doing something, but also being able to follow up in the long run. And I felt a bit hamstrung by our ability to deliver really tangible benefits for our participants from different Pacific governments. That could be action, that could be really kind of used locally, even after the project funding had come to an end. And we're just wondering what you are seeing as part of let's see the international initiative. Is this something very common or what are the things you're seeing from international practice?
3: So, yes, as you mentioned, we did that project for the GSE on the analysis of the cyber capacity building environment in the region. And from the findings of that analysis, we found that multi-stakeholderism, you know, we talked about communities earlier, is becoming adopted by Pacific Island countries where countries like Vanuatu, PNG, Tonga, in the, uh, even Samoa, they're doing really good work in bringing the communities together, the private sector, the government sector, and just the internet society people, or just, you know, the practitioners on the ground through local communities. Like we have the Samoa information technology and Tonga search is also working with the Tongan women in ICT for more collaboration for you know, just keeping everybody on the same page and making everybody aware. But the other things that I've been for the analysis found was that there's duplication of efforts. So this whole project was to look at how we could eliminate it because donors are coming to do work. You know, they're people, they have their own people and their own people are coming to do work in the region. And a lot of the work is similar or, you know, there's a lot of start-stop. There's a very little continuity or succession plan sustainability around that. And the plans have already been made. They've already been signed off on. You And then these organizations are coming to do the work. And so the Pacific is not part of the planning process. It would be nice for, um, like you mentioned, the Pacific is very different in the way that we do things. You know, there's cultural appropriateness that needs to be considered, sensitivity to culture, how things are done, how, how people communicate with each other. There's a lot of sense of community and that's been successful. But there's also limited human resource. And so you're coming with lots of projects, probably throughout the year, and then interrupting work to just come in, do something, and then go away. And so, you know, people are taken away from their day jobs to do these things. And so when work comes, work gets done, go back, and there's a lot of catching up. And so and other things like template-based solutions don't work for the region, because just because it was successful in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in Canada or something doesn't mean that it can get, you know, you just come in, plug and play here in the Pacific. You have to work out how exactly it can be done in the Pacific. I learned from a project with APNIC two years ago. We had to meet with people in the Solomon Islands. And, you know, uh, normally you can send out emails. You get email confirmations on then you can meet with them. Did not get a single reply from anybody in the Solomon Islands. I landed in the Solomon Islands, and we were there for about two days <laughs> and we were trying to figure out how we're we going to make appointments. Okay, We'll just show up and we'll see if, we can, if people can accommodate us. And then when uh, we got on the ground over there, because there's an expert community over there, they had it, uh, informed us that we needed a fixer to be able to uh, connect the people locally and bring them into the room. And so you know, I was lucky to have met somebody like that. Uh, and uh, she, you know, connected us to people, got on the phone and, you know, we ended up with meeting, two days of meetings and then one actual night session where people came for a workshop. And so... Very different from how you do things overseas. But, you know, this is how we do things in the Pacific.
6: I think it's a great example. And I think that kind of, I mean, resonates really well with, I think, a modesty on behalf of, let's say, donors and also implementing organizations like ourselves. In terms of what you can do as inherently an outsider, but also that the culture, that it's hard to say no to initiatives. While at the same time, engagement is done through informal contacts by meeting people, talking to people, and that requires more than a two or three day fly in fly out mission, but with kind of more of a, of a permanent presence. I also really like your point about the extra responsibility on donors and implementers to make sure that recipients of capacity building are, are kind of true partners in the process and they're not being confronted with already pre-designed or pre-decided projects and activities and and outcomes. And I think that is resonating, I think, really well in the broader cyber capacity building community. And as you mentioned, that's something we are trying to advocate for when scoping out a potential Pacific hub of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, which hopefully will be established early next year. And hopefully that will re we again, strengthen what you mentioned as the sense of community, which in the Pacific is much stronger in the, than I think in, in places like here in Australia or even, even in New Zealand. So Sherry, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your uh, examples and great stories and, and looking forward to catching up soon again. Thanks. Thank,
3: thank you. Bob.
0: That's a wrap on this episode. This week you had conversations with... Michael Shoebridge, Director of Defence, Strategy, and National Security at ASPE, and Dr. John Coyne, Head of the Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Programme, Dr. Hong Le Tu, Senior Analyst with ASPE's Defence, Strategy, and National Security Programme, and Dr. David Angle, Head of ASPE's Indonesia Programme, and Bart Hoggeveen, Head of Cyber Capacity Building with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Sheree Lagakali, Pacific Liaison of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise and Chair of the Pacific Chapter of Internet Society. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.